Hello, Classic Crew, and welcome to today's episode of Classically Abbey Live. Here on my podcast, we get more in-depth on topics that fit in with my classic perspective and traditional values. As a premium subscriber, you will get access to three exclusive podcast episodes every month. On today's episode, I'm really excited to have my favorite guest back on the show, my husband, Jacob. Oh, is it time for me to speak? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Okay. It's good to be here. (laughs) And we're In my own home. In your own home. Talking to my own wife. It's a nice thing, isn't it? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And we're going to be talking about Hanukkah. We are currently on the fourth night? Fifth night. Fifth night. We are on the fifth night of Hanukkah. Fourth day, fifth night. Yeah, there you go. Uh, We're on the fifth night of Hanukkah tonight. And I wanted to share with you some of the history behind Hanukkah. And by I wanted to share with you, I mean I want Jacob to share with you because he is really a... He's got a mind for history, so he'll be able to explain it in a much better way than I would. And uh, I also want to talk a little bit about the the customs and what Hanukkah is for us. It's not just Jewish Christmas, as some people may think. <laughs> it's emphatically not, actually. True enough. <laughs> it, is, it is the least that, that there could be among the various holidays, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but okay, so story of Hanukkah. What you are likely familiar with it being based upon pop cultural history, either as someone who's secular Jewish, Reformed Jewish, whatever it is, or as a non-Jew. You're familiar with Hanukkah as some vague thing of Jews fighting Greeks, and then you get the temple back, and then there's some kind of special candelabrum. <laughs> You're going to light that, and there's not enough oil, broadly, to light the darned thing, but then... The amount that's left, what's meant to be for a single day, in fact, lasts eight days. Well, what do you know? That's wonderful. Being able to have slightly longer to light your uh, candelabrum with is a cool thing, I guess. Thanks, God. That's a miracle. Celebrate the day. Eat fried foods. And that's (laughs) what it comes across as in the non-religious Jewish world. But in actual Judaic terms, Hanukkah is one of the handful of historical holidays. So you have holidays that are from the Bible, and that would be like your Rosh Hashanah, that would be your Yom Kippur, that would be your Sukkot. These are holidays that are mandated to the Jews from the beginning of our peoplehood, and those are the big deal. Those are the ones that are characterized by taking time off from work. Passover's in there as well, just to make sure I didn't leave that out. Those are (laughs) your uh, big hitters. Then you have your historical holidays. So the variety of fast days throughout the year that if you're not an observant Jew, you would not even be aware of. Tzamgadalia is one of them. That's a fast day that was instituted to commemorate the unfortunate assassination of a very righteous Jewish governor of the Jews at one point in history. Uh, Tisha B'Av, which commemorates the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans. Well, actually, also, both, both Yes, uh, were... both of them are said to have happened on the same mm-hmm. day. So, destruction of temples. Uh, And that's terrible, but those occur in history, right? That's not in the biblical narrative, whereas something like Passover, yes, you could say that's historical, but it's within the Bible narrative in Exodus as compared to the Bible is closed, Mm -hmm. and so now the Jews are just out and living, and then the Assyrians come in, or then the Romans come in. Right. So all of that aside, Hanukkah is one of those historical holidays. And specifically, the history of Hanukkah is actually, uh, to use the parlance of our times, incredibly based, incredibly (laughs) red-pilled. That's funny. Uh, It is a conservative's 
holiday. Mm -hmm. And really, it is, as you'll hear the narrative, you'll see, it is the most that that you could want. Any make a land great again movement you could (laughs) hope to get off the ground and make successful against, and imagine I'm wearing the tinfoil hat here, of like the globalist pagan cosmopolitan empire (laughs) that wants to come in and take from your people (laughs) their land and their traditional values and your ability to worship your god and turn your own countrymen against you and make them forget who they are. Yeah, it's the the most that kind of holiday you could imagine. So, okay, let's set the scene. Well, and I, I do want to say okay. that Hanukkah is one of those holidays. I mean, really, all of the Bible stories are so amazingly interesting, and Hanukkah is one of those. I mean, Hanukkah... That's per- not a Bible story. True. Like, any historical... Uh, story of the Jews, historical story of Purim, for example, is another Jewish holiday you may not have heard of. And then the Bible stories themselves. They're just so fascinating. I always think to myself, why does anyone need to make movies about anything else? If you're going to make movies, look to the Bible or look to just the history of the Jewish people. It's just, they're so interesting. So you're about to, you're about to hear that very interesting well, narrative. Well, I'm not going to go into it in great narrative detail. Uh, I'm just going to give the broad strokes mm-hmm. of it, uh, just because that really would deserve its own hour-length treatment true, to really true. treat it And we're not going to be sitting here for a full hour. <laughs> yeah. But broad strokes, so the holiday, our starting point, is Alexander the Great, right? He factors into this because he takes his father Philip's kingdom, aspiring empire, and he expands it all the way through from Macedonia, which is north of the Greek lands, through Greece, and then across the Ionian Sea into Anatolia, what we know as Turkey, all the way in through the rest of the Persian Empire. So, you know, know, Persians fought the Greeks, uh, you think of 300, that was the early Greco-Persian Wars. Well, basically what amounts to a barbarian, think like... uh, I don't know, something along the lines of like a Canadian compared to the U.S., except that doesn't even make sense because we share like the same culture. So think of like what you would think of as a cultural backwater compared to the U.S. Mm -hmm. I'm going to jokingly refer to Australia here, but just like (laughs) anything that's really on the fringe of our civilization ended up becoming a military superpower that took over our civilization, assimilated its culture wearing it like a fancy robe, but in like a McDonald's-esque version of it, like making it more of like a, a fast food edition of the culture. Yeah, paper crown instead of like the real thing. <laughs> so yeah, so the Macedonians who are like Greek white or like barbarians as far as the Greeks are concerned, are not so barbaric that they can't effectively organize, whoop the Greeks, and expand their empire. And in so doing so, they adopt Greek trappings and uh, Hellenize themselves, which is the term used for becoming more of that cosmopolitan Greek slurry. They are the uh, crab stick with a K of Greek culture. It's, it's not real crab, it's crab stick. That's what the Macedonian Hellenistic <laughs> the civilization is. the California roll of sushi. Yes, yeah, it is. <laughs> so they end up being able to whoop the Persians, and they take over the entire Persian Empire. And for reference, the Persian Empire stretched all the way from really around the area of Afghanistan to the area around Greece. It even was like even onto that European mainland a little bit. And so they conquer this massive swath of territory and they go all the way down to Egypt. They get that too. They got everything. The one thing they don't get is a political program. Alexander the Great did not have a political ideology and he didn't have a successor. He didn't have an heir. And so when he died young, like all great rock stars, he... um, is in legend said to have on his deathbed 
uh, claimed that his empire should go to the strongest. Mm -hmm. And even if that's not factual, practically that really did describe the situation. So you had the successors to Alexander, his top generals, who split up his massive realm into four warring kingdoms. These are called the Diodaci. I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly. Regardless, these are the successors. Two of these kingdoms are what are relevant to us. Egypt and then the Seleucids. The Seleucids, they're the ones who really occupied the territory of the old Persian Empire. So their land stretched from Syria, you know, just north of Judea, all the way through to around Afghanistan. Massive place. Very diverse. That's going to come into the story later. So Egypt, the Egyptian Greek kingdom, and the Seleucid kingdom, also known as like the Syrian Greeks, they wore back and forth for a very long time. Why? Because for all these pagan empires, and even not so pagan empires, once you get into medieval European history, uh, glory and honor come from controlling more of the map, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's a constant human aspiration, to paint more of the map <laughs> your color. Mm-hmm. Whatever. So borderland between the Syrian Greek kingdom, of the Seleucids, and then the Egyptian Greek kingdom is, of course, Judea where the Jews are. Now, Alexander is one of the, I think, maybe only conquerors in history to have taken over Jerusalem without slaughtering everyone inside and destroying the city. And for that, he is loved by the Jews, actually, to the point that Jews will unironically name their children Alexander Alexander to this day. (laughs) Yeah, which is, uh, think about it, that's a big deal. We don't quite do the same thing with the name Cyrus, even though that great Persian king is also viewed very favorably by the Jews. Mm -hmm. But regardless, so Alexander the... Great was viewed favorably by Jews. His successors war over Judea. Eventually, it ends up in the hands of the Syrian Greeks, the Seleucids, for a good long time period. And that's where our story really starts off with the king of the Seleucid Greeks at this point in time for Hanukkah. Think around the mid-100s BCE. So Antiochus IV is a ruler who really wants to be able to rival Rome. Rome is at this point defeated Carthage, is the dominant superpower in the Mediterranean, it's a very big deal. And so the Seleucids are able to be muscled around by Roman diplomatic attaches and uh, Roman diplomatic envoys. They're able to make commands as the Romans, and the Seleucids kind of have to agree. And so in the power politics of the region, the Seleucids want to be able to be a rival empire to the Romans, but they're not yet. So the plan is hatched on the part of Antiochus IV that his kingdom needs to be unified in the same way that the Romans have a unified culture that they're able to be very martial with and successful. And so his kingdom needs to be more assimilated. So Hellenism, this pan-Greek crab stick with a K kind of version of Greek culture that spread across the lands that were conquered by Alexander the Great, that's the real political program here. So among polytheists who are in all the lands that were conquered, it's pretty easy to institute new gods to worship for polytheists. In history, polytheists are all rather tolerant to one another because adding a new culture of a new god to an existing polytheistic pantheon is generally not the most controversial thing. They tend to be very theologically flexible. So you can try and Hellenize vast swaths of people and get them kind of cooperative, but one people who will not do that for you are the Jews. The Jews want to remain the Jews. The Jews want to worship their one god and no others. In fact, that's a pretty big part of the pitch (laughs) of being a Jew is that you'll have one god and have no others. Yep, our monotheism was getting in the way. Of this um, forced globalist cosmopolitan pagan assimilation program. Mm -hmm. And so 
this king implemented a lot of coercive measures to try and strip the ability of the Jews to practice their ancestral traditional faith. So an important thing to have in mind here, though, is that the Jews, like at every point in our history, were very split. So there really is no golden time in history where the Jews are unified people and are just free of sin or standing against their own interests or against their own people. So here at this time, we have the Hellenists, broadly within the Jewish community, who are the assimilated Greek-style Jews. Yeah, they're Jews by national origin. Yeah, they're Jews in terms of living in Judea, but they're not Jews really theologically. They don't care about that stuff. They're perfectly fine to say, yeah, I'll be a polytheistic Greek pagan god worshiper. Yeah, I'm willing to make sacrifices of pigs or other animals to propitiate Zeus's concerns and try and make him bring the rain. Sure, why not? They are what the Greeks really wanted to accomplish by banning the practice of Judaism. Mm -hmm. They didn't care about wiping out Jewish people. They cared about wiping out Jewish faith. And so if there were Hellenized Jews in your community, that was totally fine because they were living the way that the Greeks lived. And that was what mattered. It didn't have to do with any ethnicity or anything like that of wanting to wipe out Jewish people simply for being born Jewish. Yes. Uh, it was against Judaism, not against the Jews. And so within this, you have the high priesthood being co-opted by the Seleucids. So the high priest who administers the actual sacrifices in Jewish terms to God, which could only be done at the temple, and that's a very big part of Judaism, which is why without the temple, the temple, there are not many temples. The idea of calling a synagogue a temple is a later, much more recent, reformed Jewish kind of theological statement about the idea of universality. All that aside, within Judaism, the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount is the only place that Jews are allowed to make sacrifices to God. And that can only be done by the priesthood, which is from the line of Aaron and all these things. And so the Greeks figure, you know, what's a good way to try and destroy a faith? Oh, co-opt its clergy, co-opt its bureaucracy, corrupt it from within. So they forcibly uh, replace the high priest with a Greek toady. And they have this guy now put idols in the temple. They have him undermine the entire program of ritual law and things like that. And so eventually enough becomes enough. And in a town outside of Jerusalem, a small town, the Greek soldiers who are there are trying to get the locals to sacrifice a pig to the Greek gods. And so the locals who are traditional religious Jews, they're not willing to do it. They're not willing to do it at all. And so the Greeks bring in an outside Jew, who's a Hellenized Jew, who's willing to do it. And this does not fly with a local elder, Matitiahu. So Matitiahu, upon seeing this display, rises up, slays the Hellenized Jew who's about to profane the name of God. His sons and the town folk rise up, slaughter the Greek garrison who are there, and they take to the hills. A rebellion is on. Now, what's interesting about the narrative of Hanukkah is that the pop culture version of it is thought to be a war of the Jews against the Greeks. Not quite. It's much more so a civil war between the Jews. You had the vassal Hellenized Jews who ran the land of Judea in the name of the Greeks, and you had the traditional Jews who want to maintain their Jewish identity and their relationship with God. This is primarily a war between these two parties with the foreign interference and assistance of the Seleucid Greeks sending in multi-tens of thousands of men armies. Uh, 
This military history part I'm going to gloss over. Basically, Matityahu's son Judah is the main military figure for leading this rebellion. Uh, never, and these are the Maccabees. These are known as the Maccabees, yes. In case you didn't get that. <laughs> um, and so he leads a band of men that's really never more than 6,000. Sometimes it's maybe around 10,000. But in short, he's going up, up against a uh, foreign imperial power and locals who can muster 40,000-man armies. And using guerrilla fighting and very savvy tactics, this much, much smaller army is able to consistently rout, defeat, or annihilate these big armies. And so you eventually end up with the Jews able to reassert sovereignty in Judea. They defeat the Greeks. They reach an accommodation with them. Like a generation later, the Jews are actually able to assert full independence from the Seleucid Greeks when the Seleucids basically fall apart as an imperial power. But that's outside the realm of Hanukkah. The main <laughs> realm of Hanukkah is this initial battle of the traditional Jews to reestablish a form of Jewish sovereignty and independence from Hellenized cultural interference and repression of Judaism. And this Maccabee family, uh, all of the members of the family basically are killed in the course of the war or its immediate aftermath, uh, which is quite terrible. The dynasty still remains because you have descendants of the original group of brothers, but nonetheless, all of the brothers are basically wiped out in the conflict. Yeah. So the actual miracle of Hanukkah is considered to be the miraculous battle of Jews against this foreign superpower and their ability to win it. Because when you think about it, a group of militarily unprofessional, vastly outnumbered, materially under-equipped, hill-occupying mm -hmm. religious people versus the cosmopolitan military superpower of the day sending in massive armies after them and having the act of collaboration of half the country or whatever it is against them, Hey, that is actually a pretty spectacular thing. The miracle that you all are familiar with, yes. most likely, the miracle of the menorah, uh, which Jacob kind of touched on early on in this podcast, but the idea being that after the Maccabees had won the war, they came back to the temple, which had been defiled by the Syrian Greeks. And, and their collaborators. And their collaborators. Even in the priesthood. Exactly. Uh, and they were supposed to light the menorah. The menorah was supposed to be lit at all times. So when the menorah was not lit, they needed to find kosher oil with which to light it. Now, everything in the temple had been spilled or the kind of kosher symbol on it had been... Seal. Seal so had been broken. The way it goes is if you're going to be having sacramental oil that's certified pure ritualistically for its purpose in this very important candelabrum, uh, you put a seal on it. Along the same lines of uh, if you go to a foreign country, especially like in Southeast Asia, and you get a water bottle. If that water bottle's little plastic seal on it with the cap is undone, it doesn't matter if anyone took a sip from it or not, that cap is unsealed. You're not going to be drinking <laughs> that bottle of water if you know it's good for you. So it's a similar principle here, but when it comes to ritual sanctity. So even if the Greeks had not done anything to the oil, the seal was broken, and who knows what had been done with it. Just on principle, you cannot use it if the seal has been broken by some defiling foreign pagan who's there to mess up your whole scene. Exactly. <laughs> so they found one, one little container of oil, which only should have burned for a few hours. And they needed to go and create more oil. But this little can container of oil ended up lasting for eight days. It, the fires that it lit 
ended up lasting for eight days while the new oil was made. And when, To produce new oil would have taken eight days. Right. So it miraculously lasted the length of time necessary to supply new kosher oil. What a miracle. This miracle only appears in centuries later Judaic texts. Uh, the, it's really more of like an epilogue. It's yes. like the cherry on top of what Hanukkah is really about. But it's the thing that people have kind of clung on to because the symbol of Hanukkah for us is lighting the menorah. And the menorah itself, um, there's an overlap. So the Hanukkah, which refers to a menorah for Hanukkah, is the one that you would be familiar with, most likely, which has the eight branches on either side, well, total, uh, across the two sides, with the ninth branch in the middle, and that is for the eight days of Hanukkah. The menorah, the original one that it's based on, is uh, seven branches, and so it works differently. Exactly. Yes. So yeah, the uh, story of the oil, the menorah, is a later addition. The actual original inciting cause to celebrate this as a holiday that we would always remember. And, um, you know, there's a perspective that when the Messiah comes and we move to, you know, the world to come, still Hanukkah would be celebrated, Mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting thing. But the whole premise of Hanukkah, ignoring the American cultural crab stick approach to it is the reassumption of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Judea and standing against an influence that would preserve us in body but corrupt us in spirit and soul. That would be the Hellenistic foreign impulse, you know, that captured, I'm saying half the population, I don't know what the demographic breakdown was between Mm -hmm. traditional, I'll call Maccabean Jews, and then the Hellenized equivalent. Mm -hmm. But it's a very interesting holiday because it addresses the theme of assimilation, the idea of a people's ideological identity or national character as an important thing, the idea that it's a relationship with God, which is what makes you a people. Uh, And you compare that to a modern, more secular approach to Judaism, and this holiday is obviously a complete repudiation of that, right? What does it mean to be a Jew in body, but be completely assimilated in spirit? You're no longer a Jew. You're standing against the entire people, against the animating spirit of the people. It stands against the idea of like a secular Zionism, that the Jews as a nation should occupy the land of Israel just because we're a nation like any other and like the God part, eh, whatever, that's outdated, Mm -hmm. garbage. But like the ethnic component, that's where it really lies. Hanukkah as a holiday is entirely against all of that. It's the covenant with God, the religion, that is the animating identity of the people. This is a holiday about the righteous, miraculous victory of that against an attempt to make the Jews dissolve into the background of a multi-ethnic empire where everyone is otherwise the same. They just have a little special snowflake badge of a minor genetic difference from each other. (laughs) That's not the point of being Jewish, is that you're celebrating some minor genetic difference from other people, and the rest is there. The genetic difference is the least important thing about being Jewish. It doesn't matter for being Jewish. It's the service to God, that's the identity, that's what's really there. And so it's celebrating the righteous struggle of a traditional and distinct group of people against something that would make all of man the same, or attempt to, and would put some weird multicultural Tower of Babel project (laughs) above the rights and duties of any people to be themselves, preserve their culture, and serve God in their way. And so it's a great model that the Jews have with this holiday for anyone who's conservative and you know, a nationalist in a good and righteous sense in this day and age 
to look back to and celebrate. So Hanukkah, what's funny is in its distinctiveness, celebrating the distinct identity of the Jews and their relationship with God is a universal holiday for the story of liberation and like assumption of independence and national sovereignty for any people anywhere. It's a good holiday for American patriots to look back to, to fight back against, you know, what the half of the population that wants us to be dissolved into something multicultural and meaningless and international I'm using the EU as a reference point here, but anything that's great reset or like overly globalist. Uh, yeah, no, American patriots should absolutely look at Hanukkah as a great <laughs> holiday to celebrate. Any group of people, Hungarians, Poles, Britons, whomever, Spaniards, it doesn't matter who you are. Any people anywhere should be able to celebrate. Yes, I too want to be us and get along well with everyone else, but just enjoying our culture, enjoying my peoplehood uh, against something that would make us all just a meaningless crab stick worry. It is funny, Jacob and I have commented on this in the past, and ironic, that Hanukkah has kind of become the holiday of the Jewish masses. It's become the holiday that... Jewish secular masses. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. The Jews who really don't celebrate any other holidays, but they like the idea of pretty lights and presents, and they don't understand what it's about, and that it's pretty much antithetical to to what they uphold as as their life you know is saying that we want to assimilate we don't want to be distinct in our faith and that is not what hanukkah is about at all (laughs) it is in fact the opposite (laughs) i mean every aspect about that is a wonderful irony so we're going to start off with the first part which is that hanukkah is the story of traditional religious jews in conflict an actual military civil war with Hellenized, secularized, assimilated Jews and the foreign culture that they basically belong to. Um, that's what the holiday is. They, basically by the approach of their own Judaism, their secular Judaism, Reform Judaism, would be the Hellenists. And so this is a holiday that would be anti-everything about them, but because they are the assimilated secular Jews, they know so little about Hanukkah in the history that they don't even realize that it's like, punking them. Uh, Congratulations, you played yourself, basically. Another interesting part uh, about this ironic dynamic is it's the same people who are like, you know, the Hellenized, assimilated Jews in the U.S. who get so little from their Judaism because they don't practice it, they don't look to it, they don't inhabit it as like a real faith, they don't inhabit Judaism as a real nation. It's just kind of like a little ethnic badge of honor so that they can be distinctive, uh, they're the ones who are left with so little nourishment from Judaism that they could stand to be jealous of Christmas and would therefore be motivated to just grab any available holiday, celebrate around the same time, and try and make it into Christmas light. So you have the irony of the holiday that's anti-assimilation ends up being like a bizarre mirror in a way of like the secular approach to Christmas as a gift-giving thing. So the very anti-assimilation holiday ends up being a gesture of assimilation to like make your own holiday that resembles everyone else's that's going on, which is hilarious. Mm -hmm. And then also there's the aspect of people so cut off from their faith that they don't they, they would feel jealous of Christmas, right? Because right. if you're a religious Jew, you have enough going on, <laughs> uh, holiday-wise especially, that you would not think to be jealous of Christmas. Uh, you could appreciate it. You could think, oh, what a wonderful thing. It's nice to have that family love in the air. It's nice to have a celebration. But we get that at Passover. Yeah, it's the time of affliction, but you come together as a family. You get that at Sukkot, inhabiting the uh, outside hutch 
uh, if you're familiar with Sukkot, Festival of Booths, uh, you get that at Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, more dour, but you still celebrate around that time period. And then even as a secular American, you still get Thanksgiving about a month before. So if you're actually like keeping with the faith, you are well nourished by all the yeah. things that you're doing well, in your calendar. And as I've mentioned on my channel before, on Twitter, uh, I am somebody who thinks of Christmas as like, I'm cheering you guys on from the yes. sidelines. It's It's a wonderful holiday for the people who celebrate it. I get to enjoy your festivities in the sense of I get to listen to the nice music and I get to see the pretty Christmas lights. And I'm happy that you guys are happy. And that's that's for you. It's not for me. And that's okay. It's like being an attendee at a wedding. Very much so. Very yeah, much so. I don't need I to mean, be the one getting married to, to have a good time at the party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nor do I need to even be in the wedding party. This isn't about me. It's about me being happy alongside you because you are the primary happy one. Exactly. Yeah. So as far as just some cultural traditions that go kind of hand in hand with Hanukkah, uh, we like to eat fried foods because we are celebrating the miracle of the oil. Despite the fact that it's the smaller miracle, uh, that is something that we do. And uh, one of the things that we do is actually, it does go back to the time of the Syrian Greeks, which is playing the game of dreidel. So dreidel is where you spin a top. There are four sides to that top and each side has a different letter. And the letters stand for Neskadol Hayasham. A great miracle happened there. Now, depending on what letter you land on, you can either get what's in the pot. There's a pot of gelt, which is usually chocolate coins at this point, but it used to be actual money. Uh, if you land on the nun, which is the letter N in English, you'll get nothing. If you land on the letter shin, which is SH in English, you will get, uh, you will have to put half of your money back. If you land on hay, which is H in English, then you'll get half of the of the pot. And if you land on gimel, which is G, you will get the entire pot. You win. And the reason this goes back to the time of the Syrian Greeks is that when the children wanted to study Torah and didn't want to be caught, they would have tops in their pockets and they would pull them out and hide the Torah and say, oh, we're not studying, we are just playing a game. So you can't catch us, we're not doing anything wrong. Is uh, that why the rules have no actual gameplay to them? <laughs> yeah, no, it's very simple. It's not. It's a, it's a game for, for little children, and I think that might be why. I mean, I it's, mean it's at the same level as playing war with someone, mm -hmm. uh, where it's, it's not a game, it's a game without a game, <laughs> uh, and that doesn't make sense to me. So yeah, it comes across like the rules were made up on the spot. Uh, yeah, we spit it, and then I get half. <laughs> then, you know, so what do you do in the game? What agency do you have? Uh, that's not what it's about, man. You know, it's, we're having a good time. Leave us alone. And then they would. And then you study Torah again, apparently. <laughs> yep, pretty much. And uh, the lighting of the menorah is something that we we love. And we say some really beautiful prayers and songs surrounding it, thanking God for being miraculous in, in that civil war that we've discussed. So that is kind of the real story of Hanukkah that you probably have never heard before. Yeah, very likely. Um, just because, you know, it comes up something, something, Greeks, oppression, and now we have a candelabrum uh, for a good length of time. That's the version that I grew up with. So, well, and very often, like, as we mentioned, because um, Reformed Jews or Jews who are not religious say that the holiday is about anti-Semitism and just vague anti-Semitism. 
because they believe that Syrian Greeks were, that was our fight. It was against the Syrian Greeks who were trying to oppress us. That wasn't what the main majority of the fighting was about. It was, was a about. fight from within the people to assert Jewish covenant with God, not some Jewish self-identity or ethnic identity. No, that doesn't factor in. Mm-hmm. The identity of the Jew is an identity of one who is a covenant with God. That's what it is. So it's the fight between that or the vague ethnic where people who have a lineage of Judaism who live in the land of Judea, that's what makes us Jews. Now I'm going to go eat some tzatziki sauce on my gyro in the forum and then go to the gymnasium, then go to the (laughs) amphitheater, then quaff non-kosher wine from my amphora before I sacrifice a pig to Zeus. That, (laughs) with like the ethnic flair of once upon a time we were the Jews who had a covenant but not this generation, that was not the model of Judaism celebrated by Hanukkah. No. So thank you guys so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed that history. Thank you so much to Jacob for giving a really full account of it. And I don't consider that a full account. So thank you for giving me more credit than I would give myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Classically Abbey Live. Don't forget to consider giving this as a gift for the holidays. A Substack newsletter subscription might make a very good gift for a family member or a friend. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you guys in my next episode. Bye!